As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 2 The Emerald Isle. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Now, to say that Ireland has a difficult and complicated relationship with its larger eastern neighbour is putting it mildly. The King of England had claimed overlordship of Ireland since the 12th century, although his actual authority over the territory was never absolute, waxing and waning as the delicate balance of power shifted between the monarch and local nobility. By the 16th century, English authority in Ireland was not what it had once been. While Dublin and its surrounding region, known as the Pale, were firmly controlled by royal officials, the vast majority of Ireland was either only nominally subject to the English crown, or openly flouting the Tudors' supposed authority. During Henry VIII's reign, a disagreement over who should hold the position of Lord Deputy, the King's representative in Ireland, led to a rebellion against the Crown. Silken Thomas Fitzgerald, who had previously held the position of Lord Deputy, this rebellion had some initial successes. However, by July 1535, Kildare had requested and received a pardon and been taken into custody, alongside many members of his family. This pardon, however, was unfulfilled and Kildare and five of his uncles were executed at Tyburn early in 1537. 
The uncles faced the traitor's death, to be hanged, drawn, and quartered, but Kildare himself was only hanged and beheaded, as befitted his rank, which I'm sure was great comfort. The heir to the earldom of Kildare, Gerald Fitzgerald, was spirited away by his family's allies, and these leading nobles banded together into what has been called, rather misleadingly, the Geraldine League. Misleading because although their stated aim was the restoration of the young Gerald to his rightful position as Earl of Kildare, as the League grew, so did their ambitions. Soon, their goal was the outright expulsion of the English kings and English rule from Ireland. The Lord of Tyrconnell, Manus O'Donnell, was joined by Conbacac O'Neill, Lord or King of Tyrone, and the O'Briens of Thomond and the O'Connors of Sligo, among other lordships and clans, with some joining out of choice, others through coercion. At its height, the League resembled a national movement. As an aside, these are a lot of names and a lot of titles, but I will mostly be referring to the sitting lords by their titles. These dynasties, and their relationship with the Tudor and later Stuart state, will be relevant for the next hundred years. Before we continue, it is important to understand the ethnic and cultural divides between the inhabitants of the island of Ireland. From the Tudor period onwards, Irish society could largely be divided into three distinct political groupings. The Gaelic Irish, the Old English, and the New English. The Gaelic, or Old Irish, were the original inhabitants of Ireland. They were Celtic, they had their own traditions and cultures, they spoke the Irish language, which is often called Gaelic, and they lived under their own laws. Ostensibly, they were vassals of the King of England, but in practical terms, the Gaelic lords were autonomous to the point of independence. In this group, you would find your O'Neills and O'Connors. The Gaelic lords and clans often had much more in common with Gaels in southwestern Scotland, across the Straits of Moyle, than they did with their old and later new English neighbours, and these cultural similarities led to frequent exchanges of trade, marriages, and military forces. As we will see, neither England nor Scotland were pleased by this international cooperation between powerful and unruly populations. The Old English, also called the Anglo-Irish or Hiberno-Normans, were, as that last name suggests, the descendants of the original Norman conquerors, and largely occupied Dublin and its surrounding area. The Fitzgeralds of Kildare and the Butlers of Ormond were just such dynasties. These Anglo-Irish largely kept to the south and east, in castles and villages that were proudly English in culture and administration. Nevertheless, after centuries of proximity, these communities gradually adopted elements of their Gaelic neighbours' culture, and grew increasingly independent-minded. The English crown was not particularly keen on these developments, with crises like Kildare's Rebellion only proving their fears right, and it was far from the first or the last. The New English were a Tudor addition to this political drama. While there had been English emigration to Ireland throughout the previous centuries, they did not arrive in sufficient numbers to constitute their own faction. As we will cover in this episode, 
The arrival of the new English was the result of a deliberate policy in London and Dublin to alter Ireland's society to fit with the government's approval, while simultaneously punishing rebellious lords and hopefully earning English investors a sizeable profit. The policy that began and failed under the Tudors would find new life under the Stuarts. Back to the narrative. In August of 1539, the Geraldine League attacked the Pale and ransacked a number of towns, making off with a substantial amount of loot. The current serving Lord Deputy, Lord Leonard Grey, followed the raiding army with the English garrison and attacked the celebrating soldiers at dawn, inflicting a devastating blow and forcing the rebels to abandon their newfound wealth. Now, despite this setback, the League remained united. The young Fitzgerald was dispatched to safety on the European continent, and the rebellious lords considered transferring their allegiance from Henry of England to James of Scotland. Despite his victory over the League, the increasing cost and length of the rebellion, combined with complaints from loyal Irish of his methods and the escape of the young Earl, put Lord Grey in a very precarious position. His patron and protector was Thomas Cromwell, who had his own enemies at court and for whom events in Ireland hardly helped his defence. Grey was summoned to answer for his conduct in April 1540. Two months later, in June, Cromwell was outmanoeuvred by his political enemies, arrested and executed. Grey followed him to the Tower, and in 1541, Grey followed his former patron to the block on charges of treason for his failures in Ireland. Grey was replaced as Lord Deputy by Sir Anthony St. Liga, an administrator rather than a military man, as had been Grey and Kildare. St. Liga represented a new approach to government in Ireland. For starters, he often deferred to local leaders, building up cooperative relationships with the king's Irish subjects rather than simply relying on the sword. Although he did not shy away from conflict, there was still a rebellion after all. St. Leger campaigned to wear the Irish lords down, and was largely successful in doing so. By December of 1541, even the O'Neill had submitted and recognised Henry as his liege. St. Leger oversaw a policy known to historians as surrender and regrant. As Professor Stephen Ellis of the National University of Ireland describes the policy, quote, the basic aim was to incorporate Gaelic lordships by consent into a new, fully anglicised Kingdom of Ireland comprising the whole island. End quote. Essentially, all Gaelic lords, meaning Irish nobility who were not descended from Norman or English settlers and whose first language was the Irish tongue, were required to formally surrender their Irish titles to the king. The king would then regrant these titles to their former holders. There were multiple reasons for this policy. Firstly, the very fact that the Gaelic lords took part in the policy made clear to everyone that they had lost to the English. This was made explicit during the process itself. The Irish lords would have to publicly accept that they held their lands, not of any ancient blood right, but of the king, formally swearing oaths of loyalty to the English crown and recognising Henry's sovereignty. Their titles were then granted in the English style. No longer would the Gaelic lords be known by their patronomic alone, for example, the O'Neill and the O'Connor, 
to distinguish their kingship over their clan. They swore to obey and assist royal authority and government, to provide their king with military service, and to adopt English language and customs. The lords received these terms in a charter, which simultaneously bestowed them their titles. In addition, this policy had the effect of sharply severing the vast networks of client and blood relationships that made up Gaelic political arrangements. While this was intended to reduce the chance of another league of Gaelic nobles rising against the crown, it had the added claim of removing the cause of many disputes between the clans. Questions over which village or clan owed allegiance to which noble were, in theory, firmly settled. This policy, while successful in some ways, was more or less suspended by 1543, and the Gaelic nobles carried on much as they had before. They might have signed some paper that promised that they would abandon their traditions, but for many of them, Dublin was far away, and London even further still. During the revolt, Pope Paul III had written to Tyrone, and publicly addressed him as, quote, our noble king of the realm of Ireland, end quote. The English monarch had held the title of Lord of Ireland for centuries, but Henry's break with Rome had, in the Pope's eyes, forfeited that title. English overlordship had been bestowed by the Holy Father centuries ago. He was therefore well within his right to revoke it. Naturally, Henry did not see things the same way, this was not a welcome development, and while there would be no more Irish rebellions during Henry's lifetime, from a legal standpoint, his right to rule Ireland had been critically undermined. Even had the Pope not intervened, the status of Henry's title had the effect of weakening his rule. As Alice writes, quote, The king's title as mere Lord of Ireland seemed to confirm this, and encouraged the search by disaffected magnates for an alternative overlord, while the breach with Rome added to doubts." End quote. In the turbulent times of the English Reformation, the crown was wary of anything that could provide fuel for dissent. It was partly to repair this weakness that a parliament was called in Dublin in 1541, which formally bestowed upon Henry the title, not of Lord, but King of Ireland. This act, the Crown of Ireland Act, could be read as a declaration that Ireland was a kingdom the equal and separate partner of England. Yet the act makes clear that the Irish crown was, quote, united and knit to the imperial crown of the realm of England, end quote. Henry had also considered his right to rule Ireland as one based on conquest, won by his ancestors, and he was not fond of being granted anything by his subjects, least of all a title. The Crown of Ireland Act was specifically reworded on his orders to ensure that the edict simply reiterated his legal right to rule, rather than suggest that this was a new endowment. Ireland was a separate legal entity to England, and would remain so until 1801. But whatever ambiguity there was in this relationship, one thing was clear. England was in charge. Of course, not everyone saw it like this, including many of the Gaelic and Anglo-Irish lords. The efforts taken to douse the flames of rivalry between the lords and to bring Irish customs into line with English sensibilities were largely unsuccessful. 
Throughout the reigns of Henry's children, Edward VI, Mary and Elizabeth, Ireland would erupt into rebellion and conflict both between local nobility and against the crown. Now I won't be covering the next 50 years in the detail it deserves, otherwise this episode will be many times longer than planned. However, we will examine the Tudor plantations of English settlers on confiscated Irish land and how these early colonies fared, and the role they played as prototypes for the colonisation of the New World. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. England's involvement in Ireland throughout this period was dominated by three ever-present and interlinked elements. The first were the cultural differences between those three groups of inhabitants. The relationship between the Gaelic-Irish, Anglo-Irish and New English was usually bitter and often outright hostile both politically and militarily. The second is the religious separation between people and state that had taken on a new importance with the Reformation. While it would be a mistake to suggest that English Catholicism and Gaelic Catholicism were identical, the ramifications of the Tudor break from Rome was a completely different animal. The third was the strengthening, centralising force of the Tudor state, which faced opposition from scores of Irish lords, both Gaelic and Norman. How these elements interplay with one another is a long-running debate, Nicholas Canny, Professor of History at the National University of Ireland, and whose work I have found very useful when writing my Irish episodes, emphasises the importance of cultural and ethnic divisions above the two other elements in explaining the English plantation system, which required further centralisation of government and was both driven by and exacerbated by religious divisions. Regardless, all three factors will repeatedly appear whenever the narrative returns to Ireland. With the death of Henry in 1547, his heir Edward came to the throne, beginning a regency under his uncle, the Duke of Somerset, Lord Protector Edward Seymour. We spoke briefly about his reign in episode 1, when we covered his overthrow in 1549, and then his execution in 1552. Somerset was replaced by the Duke of Northumberland, John Dudley, who had an unfortunate meeting with an axe in 1553 after failing to secure the succession of Lady Jane Grey. Edward had, of course, died in 1553, and his will stated that Lady Jane would be his heir. However, his half-sister Mary was having none of that, and Jane would follow Northumberland to the block in 1554. By 1554, Ireland's political scene had substantially changed. The Privy Council had become aware 
that its military strategy in Ireland was not cost-effective, and sought other methods to enforce England's rule. The young Gerald Fitzgerald, 11th Earl of Kildare, who had fled the country after the 10th Earl's failed rebellion, had been gradually welcomed in from the cold. Edward, or rather his regents, had pardoned young Gerald and granted him a pension of £300 on his return to London, possibly driven by the ever-present concern of foreign intervention. An exile lord with the potential of Gerald was a risky piece to leave roaming Europe. Allowing his return kept him out of the hands of England's enemies who might support him in violently reclaiming his lands. By 1554, Gerald was once again Kildare, having had his title and most of his estates returned by the successive governments of Somerset, Northumberland, and Mary. Joining Kildare in Ireland was the Earl of Ormond, Thomas Butler, and Barnaby Fitzpatrick, of Upper Osry, who had been raised at court alongside Edward. By restoring these Anglo-Irish lords to their holdings, the Crown hoped that their gratitude, combined with their stronger links to England, would ensure their loyalty and obedience. The newly restored nobles, by virtue of their time away from Ireland, had fewer connections among their new countrymen and subjects than their predecessors had. Now this was a double-edged sword for London. Their comparatively weaker positions meant that they would be less likely, so the thinking went, to rebel against the government. However, it also restricted their authority and hampered their ability to serve the Crown's interests. Kildare would remain a significant defender of the Pale and English government for the rest of his life, but he would never command the influence of his predecessor, and so was much less effective, despite being more pliant. To the west of the Pale were the territories of Leash and Offaly, confiscated from the O'Connors, O'Moores and O'Dempseys over previous years. In 1552, the Lord Deputy, Sir James Croft, was ordered to assess the best way to plant the area with settlers. Earlier, the government had been petitioned by a group of English soldiers and gentlemen to receive the freehold of Leash. They offered to clear the local residents from their land, pay for the garrison of the local fort protector, and pay an annual rent of 600 Irish pounds. Croft had disputed the proposal on the grounds that the granting of such a large territory would be both dangerous and inefficient. Inefficient because investment would be spread widely, and so development would be haphazard. Dangerous because such a huge territory would bestow vested interests with significant local power. The territory was available because of a dispute between Crown and local power brokers. It would not do to risk repeating that situation. Croft had advocated shiring the territory along the lines of the English system of governance, and dividing them into much smaller parcels of land bestowed for a fixed period. Croft didn't have long to make his case, as he was recalled to London by the end of 1552. However, the policy was eventually enacted in 1556. The result was the plantation of Queen's County, Leash, and King's County, Offaly, named after Queen Mary and her husband, King Philip of Spain. St. Leger, back in his position as Lord Deputy, granted the lands out in small pieces, but it was difficult to attract settlers to the area. The former occupants had not accepted their dispossession, 
the O'Connors and O'Moores specifically, would raid and pillage the territory for decades to come, killing and driving off those settlers who had actually taken the offer. St. Liga was later instructed to bestow the lands as freehold, granting them in perpetuity rather than for a fixed period. Despite this, the plantation never reached the heights its architects had hoped, and most settlement came to be clustered around the fortifications at Phillipstown and Marysboro, attracted to the relative safety provided by the garrisons there. With Mary's death and Elizabeth's accession in November 1558, the government's general policy in Ireland continued. With war in Scotland and France, peace and stability in England's Western Front was the main concern, and as cheaply as possible. One such way was the gradual quote-unquote civilization of the Irish through surrender and regrant, and the imposition of English custom and law. Advocates of this approach could point to examples in the north of England and in Wales, former borderlands that had been, more or less, successfully integrated into the English political system. In principle, the same success could be replicated in Ireland, which seemed to share many similarities with the Celtic Welsh and the lawless northern marches. However, there were important differences between these areas. In the words of Ellis, quote, Although Wales remained culturally Celtic, politically it had been largely integrated into the English system, whereas Gaelic Ireland remained independent, and the nobles' armed bands were necessary for defence, even if, as in Wales, they also fermented disorders. In consequence, efforts to apply a Welsh solution melt with more strenuous resistance in Ireland, end quote. Ellis points out that Ireland's resistance in the face of the successful integration of other English borderlands coincided with the growing English interest in colonisation in the New World. Ireland, after all, had been colonised in the past, both by the Normans and in more recent years. In the Tudor mind, Ireland gradually came to be seen not as an unruly borderland, but as a misbegotten colony. In the eyes of officials in London and Dublin, the Gaelic-Irish shared more in common with the savages that had been found in the New World than with their English civilised neighbours. Their religious practices and customs were varied across the island. The inhabitants maintained a pastoral, almost nomadic approach to livestock rearing, and their architecture was primitive and insubstantial, even for the buildings of their lords. Plantation and settlement rather than conciliation with Gaelic lords, gained popularity in official circles, in spite of the relative failures of Lee Shoffley. As new plantations appeared over the subsequent decades of Elizabeth's rule, greater effort and expense was allocated to them. One such opportunity would appear to an English gentleman, diplomat and courtier called Sir Thomas Smith. Smith was granted the right by the Privy Council to plant a region of north-east Ulster, including most of the peninsula of the Ards, which loops around Strangford Lock. The peninsula would, in theory, be easy to defend, as land assault could only come from one direction, and after much petitioning of Elizabeth, Smith was granted 360,000 acres of land for the purposes of plantation. With his grant in hand, Smith went to work, gathering the people who would actually make his project a reality, as well as work out a way to pay for it all. 
Along with the growing disillusionment among the English elite of the possibility of assimilating the Gaelic-Irish peacefully, the monetary benefits of colonisation were at the forefront of many minds. Ellis calls it, quote, fashionable, get-rich-quick schemes, end quote, and compares it to alchemy and piracy. Of them, colonisation had added benefits. A recurring theme throughout the empire was the fear of the overpopulation of the lower classes. Shipping them off regularly to foreign lands was a convenient solution to dangerous numbers of poor people. Similarly, the gales that remained in the Ards would be converted to the English religion and English culture simply by proximity, which was of course a good thing all in itself. Smith depicted this new colony as a successor to the Roman colonial system, which had once civilised the ancient Britons. Smith began an intensive recruitment campaign to gather the soldiers, settlers and investment necessary to make the plantation a success. Funding would be gathered through subscription into a joint stock company, which would cover the cost of supplying and defending the colony until it was self-sustaining and profitable. This would, of course, probably take two years. By May 1572, Smith had gathered around 750 adventurers in Liverpool under the command of his bastard son, also called Thomas. It was from these ranks of adventurers that a new aristocratic elite would be formed. They would be charged with defending the colony and managing its administration. In the words of Ellis, quote, they would first expel the wicked, barbarous and uncivil people, some Scottish and some wild Irish, and establish a kind of encomienda system like Spanish America in which the Irish churl, a very simple and toilsome man, would be gently entertained and well rewarded for ploughing and labour, but not enfranchised, allowed English dress, nor to bear arms or office nor purchase land, end quote. We're quite lucky that Smith saw fit to print his intentions and publish them so widely, but it was probably less beneficial for Smith himself. You see, he doesn't seem to have considered the fact that the Irish nobility could read. By March of 1572, Sir Brian O'Neill of Clandyboy, who claimed ownership of the land granted to Smith, had acquired a copy of Smith's pamphlet and, would you believe it, wasn't entirely keen on this whole scheme. He wrote to Elizabeth because he could read and write, and complained about the plan, as he was a loyal and obedient subject. O'Neill promised resistance, and Elizabeth's Lord Deputy, Sir William Fitzwilliam, warned his Queen that the colony could spark another rebellion. Elizabeth belatedly withdrew her support for the mission, and most of the gathered soldiers returned home, or joined an expedition to the continent. Nevertheless, Young Thomas Smith led fewer than a hundred men to Ireland, and they landed in modern-day County Dow in August of 1572. Smith, the younger, was not welcomed by either the Lord Deputy or local notables. Fitzwilliam, who had never supported the project, did not assist Smith beyond lending him a small amount of money and some wheat. The Anglo-Irish family that ruled the southern tip of the Ards Peninsula, the Savages, were hostile to the idea of a colony on their doorstep. Smith met with Sir Brian O'Neill, but, shockingly, the chief refused to cede any land to the English for their settlement. Instead, Brian ravaged the Ards in concert with the O'Neills of Tyrone, which was a sign of quite how opposed the locals were, since the two lords were rivals. 
The violence ceased over winter, and the O'Neills employed the common tactic of appearing to consider negotiation. Both Fitzwilliam and Smith's father warned the younger Smith that this was a ruse, the older Smith even dispatching reinforcements to his son, which would never reach him. Thomas, naively, eagerly looked forward to peace in spring. When this peace never materialised, the English had some success in driving off the Irish, only to be pushed south to New Townards. Here, Smith met his end. He was shot by one of his Irish followers, who reportedly boiled his body and fed it to their dogs. His father was, understandably, slightly upset at the death of his son, quote, by the revolting of certain Irishmen of his own household to whom he overmuch trusted, end quote, and pushed for a second expedition in 1574, which also failed ignominiously. The next notable attempt at plantation was in the wake of the Earl of Desmond's rebellion. His second rebellion, actually. In the late 1560s and early 1570s, the Fitzgeralds of Jasmine, anglicised to Desmond, had fought against the English government and their rivals, the butlers of Ormoon, or Ormond, over their encroachment and the restriction of their traditional rights. The Fitzgeralds were led by Gerald Fitzgerald, the 15th Earl of Desmond, not Gerald Fitzgerald, the 11th Earl of Kildare, who we spoke about earlier. The butlers were led by Thomas Butler, the Earl of Ormond, who returned to Ireland alongside Kildare and Upper Ossory in the 1550s. For clarity's sake, I will be referring to them by their titles, Desmond and Ormond, because there's just too many Geralds. Desmond was in serious financial trouble. By 1565, his lordship was swamped with debt to the crown in the region of almost two and a half thousand Irish pounds, inherited from his father, and he had previously lost a recognizance, uh, similar to a bail bond, of 12,000 Irish pounds. His income, 20 years later, would only be 1,000 Irish pounds a year. Traditional methods of wealth extraction had been forbidden by the Tudor state, the customary exactions and feudal dues that a lord could expect from his vassals and subjects. Desmond was stuck between a rock and a hard place. By obeying Tudor law, his debts increased and his vassals and neighbours saw his behaviour as weakness. By responding to them with violence and a show of force, part of the reason violence had broken out in the 1560s and 70s, the government tightened its grip and further restricted his freedom of action. In 1579, conflict between the Fitzgeralds and the Crown once again erupted, and after a brutal war which involved papal and Spanish involvement, the Desmond dynasty was obliterated. English forces destroyed everything in their path, killing cattle and burning villages and fields explicitly to deprive the Irish of food and shelter. By 1581, this tactic had borne fruit, with many of the lower-level rebels surrendering and being offered a pardon by the Queen. Desmond himself held out until November 1583, when he was killed by the O'Moriarty clan, who sent his head to London and received a significant financial reward for their services. The destruction of the Desmond dynasty and the confiscation of their property had brought vast tracts of land into the control of the Tudor state. When the new Lord Deputy, Sir John Perrow, or Perrot, arrived in 1584, he was advised by Ormond to redistribute the estates to loyal nobility as a reward for their service. The growing civil service in Dublin, 
the New English, argued instead for extensive plantation of the land with settlers from England, and under their supervision, of course. What resulted was a compromise, although with a clear preference to the plantation policy. The nobles received some land, but Ormond was only granted about 3,000 acres, with other lords getting even less. The rest, some 574,000 acres, worth almost 10,000 Irish pounds, was designated as viable for plantation. 86 English gentlemen were to plant each portion of land delegated to them with 90 tenants, meaning the rentpayers and their families. Ellis estimates that the initial objective for the monster plantation, as it came to be known, was to plant roughly 6,500 settlers, an enormous task. Only 108 people landed at Roanoke Island in the same year. The documents he bases this estimate on are extensively detailed, with exact numbers and categories of settlers listed, the size of the land to be distributed, cost of transport, supply, and the salaries of those officials who would operate on site. Yet, much like on the battlefield, no plan survives contact with the enemy. In this case, the enemy was bureaucracy, local resistance, and, oh yeah, the Spanish Armada. To organise the export of necessary goods and people from England required a massive amount of paperwork, and the sea lanes were far from secure. Those settlers who did make the crossing found that, despite having the legal right to live in a certain plot of land, it was much harder to actually work out where their claim was. Even for those who did locate their land, the delay of many years had complicated things. While the war and the literal scorched-earth policies of the English had left a land relatively vacant immediately after the conflict, the subsequent pardons and passing years meant that many former Gaelic Irish and Old English had returned to their former homes. So far, those settlers and undertakers who had paid the cost of transport and left their old lives behind, they found not the promised land of endless and available bounty, but a dug-in and hostile population. Legally, this situation was just as complicated. The vagaries of deeds meant that any settlers seeking assistance from the courts must first prove their right to live on the contested land. Even were they to do that, Many of the juries in local courts were made up of Old English, who rarely found in the New English favour. In 1588, Elizabeth had to send over Chief Justice Anderson at the head of a special commission, with special instructions to only allow official records as evidence in these disputes. Claims based on Gaelic custom or law were dismissed, and so the commission rejected 80 out of the 81 claims. So that was that then. The previous tenants were ruled to be squatters and evicted. Well, some rejected claimants appealed to the Privy Council, who did their best to resolve what they saw as blatant injustices. However, without knowledge of Irish land titles, the council largely relied on testimony from the claimants. The council would find in an old English tenant's favour, based on their testimony, and a few weeks later would be convinced by their new English opponent, based on their testimony, and so, the Privy Council repeatedly contradicted itself and its decisions. For those Gales and Old English that were ruled against, they often just refused to leave. The usual course of action was for the undertakers to simply accept them as new tenants, completely defeating the point of the plantation, which was to gain a loyal, Protestant, New English population. 
1586, there were no successful settlements established by new English planters. In 1587, there were some, and a greater number in 1588 and 1589. By the end of the century, 35 undertakers had been successful in settling almost 300,000 acres, far less than was originally expected by government planners. Only 40 of the original 86 undertakers took out patents for monster land, likely due to the significant difficulties encountered. Still, this was quite a successful colony, on par with those in the New World. Munster became dotted with pockets of Englishness, where once there were none. However, when violence once again returned to Munster in 1598, the spread out and undefended settlements were devastated. The Henrician policy of cooperation, with the aim of a peaceful transition from wild borderland to civilised English countryside, a la Wales and North England, was dying, if not already dead, in the official mind of Dublin and London. While peace was still preferred, this was more to do with financial and geopolitical concerns. Putting down revolts in Ireland was expensive, and the rebellions themselves provided opportunities for England's enemies to interfere. The threat of invasion via Ireland was never far from anyone's mind, as we shall see with the Nine Years' War. But, despite the government's preference for peace, the experiences of the new English undertakers over the latter half of the 16th century fundamentally altered their view of Ireland, as can be seen in their writings. William Herbert was one such author. He wrote his Croftus, which expressed a less tolerant approach to bringing the island under Elizabeth's rule based on his time in the country. To summarise, he wrote that English rule could only be upheld after troublesome Irish traditions, such as traditional dress, language and Catholicism, were uprooted and replaced by English substitutes, and that the colonisation of Ireland with natural-born Englishmen, was to be continued, supported by English garrisons. After the outbreak of the Nine Years' War, two other notable undertakers entered the discussion. Richard Beacon, who published Solon His Folly in 1594, and Edmund Spencer, with his View of the Present State of Ireland in 1596. Generally speaking, these two agreed with Herbert. Ireland must be conquered by force, planted with English colonists, and stripped of degenerate Irish customs. The Irish, both Gaelic and Anglo-Irish, simply could not be trusted, as Hugh O'Neill was showing at the time. Spencer was notably extreme. He advocated a policy of deliberate starvation and transportation of native Irish, regardless of their loyalty to the crown, to make way for English colonists. It's quite a venomous tract and has become rightly infamous. All three texts are available online to read for free. Thank you for listening to Pax Britannica. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for providing the music used in this episode, and to Joe Byrne from the 80 Days podcast for helping me with some Irish pronunciations. Go listen to 80 Days, an exploration podcast to hear three history and geography nerds travel the world in an internet-powered balloon. They take you to visit remote, unusual, or ignored parts of the world, and talk about what makes them unique. Very worth a listen, and I heartily recommend them. Next time, we leave Ireland behind for the moment. Elizabeth's reign saw the gradual breakdown of traditional European alliances, 
and the collapse of centuries-old trade relationships. During her reign, English sailors sought after and found valuable new sources of wealth. New trading partners, yes, but also less legitimate and more violent ways to acquire treasure. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.